Good evening. Well, welcome you all and welcome to you guys that are online. We're excited to be able to be here and once again be able to study God's Word and, and enjoy just the opportunity to be able to, to worship and, and pause during our week. And it's been, a, I don't know about you, but it's been a very busy week for me. So it'll be nice just to be able to sit and sit in the presence of God and, and worship Him. And we take a look at John chapter 8 tonight. Let's go ahead and let's pray for the night and uh, all that we got going on. God, we thank You that You are here, You're present, that we are in Your presence at Your throne room of grace. We pray, Holy Spirit, that You would... Help us to set aside the cares of the day, the things that are going on, that we could just set these things aside and that we could be fully present with you and worship you in spirit and in truth. God, I thank you for the opportunity to gather in this place. We pray that over these tracks even now, as they go out to the different homes and communities that are represented in our church, that they would make their way into households and that we would see Whole households come to faith. So, Lord, we thank you. We praise you for tonight. Go before us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
to gather here together tonight and have a family dinner with you, Lord. Thank you that we're able to worship you tonight and just go before the service, Lord. Open our ears. Help us to hear what you want us to hear, Lord. Thank you for your son that died for us, Lord. Amen. Well, if you would, find your way over to John chapter 8. We're going to do verses 1 through 30 tonight. A couple other reminders. Tomorrow at 10 a.m. at Skyline Memorial is Marv Laughlin's uh, service. So we're doing the service inside, and then there's a graveside service at noon. Is it? Yeah. No, I think 11:30. Right after the main service, then there'll be the graveside. So if you're if you can come up and and do that. Also, um, some other things that that we definitely want to encourage about. We had a great time uh, in Turkey and and Rome and. There's been quite a bit of interest in going back to Israel, and so we are starting planning for that. But it wouldn't be until spring of probably like March of 2024. So we're, we're starting to work towards that, and then we're gonna, it's going to be super cool because we're going to go to Jordan and Petra and have all day in Petra and, and a, a number of different things. So something to kind of think about and to consider. Tonight, though, we're going to be in Jerusalem. We're going to be at the Temple Mount. And here we are in John chapter 8. Now, as we come into John chapter 8, 
And we take a look at these, these passages here. And actually in John chapter 7, verse 53, all the way to 8.11, you might find in your Bibles um, some bracketing that is around that. And you're going, well, what is that and, and what is that about within that. Well, one of the things that Bible scholars will do is it's called textual criticism. What textual criticism is, is they take a look at what the Bible text says and what it is, and then they take a look at um, how valid these passages are, and they date them all the way back to the original manuscripts, the oldest manuscripts. And so we know that that we have the original manuscripts in Greek and, and we're able to take a look at these. And, and so then they weigh the balance of the, the translation that is there. And this is one of those sections that modern translators have included, but the original and most reliable manuscripts does not have. And you say, well, why is it in my Bible? Because it's a historical account but it doesn't have the same weight as the canonicity of the regular texts. So it, it appeared about 4th century, and it was through some scribes that had, had brought it back in. But the scholars, such as Irenaeus and Tertullian, didn't mention this work at all. But early church fathers Augustine, Ambrose, and Jerome did support this as a work. So if you were to take a look at the section we're going to take a look tonight, because it's got some validity in it um, within this as an account, it would be more or less an appendix that, that you would add back in. So it was an account, but they wrestled with it being in there, and there wasn't any support in the original work of John, most likely not written by John. But the later transcribers had actually put it into it and put it into this place. And I know it sounds a bit confusing, but what we want to do is we want to understand really all of the all of the text and how it's in. It's thought to have been a section that actually came out of what's called the Gospel of Hebrews that was brought back in. And so we're giving it weight from the account of some of the early church fathers, but we don't want to hold it. And when you come across passages like this, you don't want to develop... Um, deep theology out of it. This is not a hill to die on in this account, but it does have some, some great account. And as, a, as I said, it was most likely an event that, um, that did take place, not written by John in his original letter, but written in another place of the scribe right in. Does that make sense? Or did I thoroughly confuse you? So where the text is clear, we want to be clear. But where in textual criticism in the original language, it's not there. There's some sections in Mark that are the same way. That I want to be clear with you on that, so that you know historically and, and where the, these sections fit in. So as I said, this, this section was not in the earliest manuscripts. It should be more considered as an appendix or a reference account. But there is value in it, because it tells us the account of the mercy of Jesus. And so this would have been somebody that had had written of the event, and then they, they put it in here to John's account. One of the other reasons why we know that it is probably not um, John's account is because it doesn't really fit the whole uh, temple proceedings that, that's going on. It's kind of shoehorned or put into this place. But as I said earlier, it, it really is does have some great value 
in the fact that it is an historical event. Um, but it, it's not on the same canonicity as the, the holy inspired canon that we have. And so they, they disagree on it. So let's take a look at it, though. In verses 1 through 6, this really is an account of mercy. I like mercy. I'm sure you do too. Why? Because mercy is not getting what you deserve. And here we have this account of Jesus being merciful. And those that are the naysayers, the troublemakers that are opposing Jesus. In verses 1 through 6 it says, And Jesus... Um, and Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning, and he came again to the temple. And all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And having set her in the center of the court, they said to her, him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. And now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? And then they were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger he wrote on the ground. So we find that there are those that would oppose Jesus. Now, the sad part about this is they had such a vendetta against Jesus that they would take this woman, and they would bring this woman before Jesus and want her put to death and have Jesus Make a declaration. And, and can you imagine this, this event? It, it's interesting to note, though, that it's an event that follows Jesus going on to the Mount of Olives. Now, if you've been to Jerusalem with us, you know Mount of Olives is not very far. It's maybe a 20-minute walk from the Temple Mount. If you remember, we were on the Temple Mount and we walk out through the lion's gate. We couldn't go through the east gate because it's all blocked up. So we went down through the lion's gate, down through the valley, and then up the other side. And you can see it. It's not very far. But when Jesus was there, he could have gone in and out of the east gate, which would have been a really short walk. Mount of Olives. Well, what was special about, about the Mount of Olives? What's, it, what's on the Mount of Olives? The Garden of Gethsemane. It was a place that Jesus often went to to go pray and to go have his quiet time. So in the morning he would go and get away from the crowds and he'd go up and pray in this area when he was in Jerusalem. And then he would come back to the Temple Mount and then he would teach. You imagine having this amazing time of fellowship with your father, being encouraged, and then it's time to go to work. And the first thing that happens is you've got some knuckleheads that are bringing this woman out to test you. Now, Satan is the accuser of the brethren within this. And we've got to understand that he is going to take advantage of this. And so, as Jesus was coming back in the morning, he came into the temple to teach the people, as was his custom. In the Temple Mount is a big flat area, and he often would come into this Temple Mount area and he would teach, along with other rabbis. They would go and they'd find a spot, and it's a big area. It's, gosh, easily... You know, maybe a couple football fields side by side, right? So the, the rabbis would go and they would go find a spot. They would come in and then they would sit down and then students would come in here. And so you could have all of these pockets of rabbis that are teaching all through that area. And Jesus would go there and he would go and he would sit down and teach. What's really cool about this is that the teacher got to sit and everybody else had to stand. Maybe we should practice that. 
I don't know how we got with this customer. I got to stand and you get to sit. But that's so Jesus sits down and he's beginning to teach the people, as was his custom. And within this, the scribes and the Pharisees, they brought this woman caught in the act of adultery. Notice he sat down to begin to teach in two. And then in threes, the scribes, Pharisees brought this woman. Hmm. How many people does it take to have an adulterous act? Two. Where's the man? Interesting. They bring just the woman. They bring the woman to Jesus. They knew Jesus would be on the Temple Mount. They put this woman, and notice it says, caught in the midst of adultery. Which means what? They were watching. This means that they knew that this woman was an adulterous woman. And that they were watching for that opportunity. And they knew that Jesus would be on the Temple Mount. And they said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to set him up. So this woman who was an habitual adulteress was set up to be brought to Jesus, but no man. Now, that's interesting because it's, they're trying to uphold the law, but they're actually violating the law. Now, I know people don't manipulate the laws for their own benefits from time to time. But they do. What was their motivation? Was it justice? Was it justice because they wanted to to get rid of all of the adultery in Jerusalem? No. We're told what the motivation was. It was to get Jesus to trick him into doing something that would violate the law. This woman was a pawn. And they're accusing. It's interesting because this word accuse means to charge with fault or blame. Where does that come from? Revelation chapter 12, verse 10 says this, And then I heard with a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For, note, the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. Who is that? Satan. What does he do? He accuses you before holy God day and night. But in Timothy, we're told we have an advocate for the Father, that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So we have this battle going on in heaven where Satan is bringing these accusations, saying, hey, look, at you! have you seen what Carrie's doing? Have you seen what he's thinking? And accusing me before God. And then Jesus, on the other hand, says, no, he's a child of mine and that he is saved and his, his sins are washed away and my righteousness is put upon him. There is no accusation that can stick against him. And there's this battle going on. Do you know that Satan lives to accuse you before God? And if he can't get any traction in the accusations before God then where else does he go to fight the battle? In your mind. And these demons come in and they'll say, hey, Carrie, you know, you're not worthy of being a pastor. You're not worthy of being a child of God because those thoughts that you're thinking, those things that, that, that you're thinking in your heart, they disqualify you. 
just quit. And all of those accusations come in. Why? Because he is the accuser of the brethren. And so this is really living out in front of Jesus by this woman. Satan who wants to accuse the brethren. And the religious leaders were using this woman. Question, was the woman guilty? Was she guilty? Absolutely she was guilty. She was caught in the midst of the act of adultery. She was guilty. And they bring her in before them. And she was guilty. And they, but they were using these circumstances for their own benefit. In Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, this is the law. It says this, If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, note, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to what? Death. Do you find both parties in the law? But what they do is they don't bring the adulterer, they just bring the adulteress. And with this, the man's not there. Why? We don't know. But we know it was a setup. So imagine being this woman who was caught in the act. She was caught. And she's brought before Jesus with the lawyers on the Temple Mount in front of all of these people and declared an adulteress. How would you feel if you were that woman? Ashamed? No hope? Knowing the law says that you should be put to death? This woman is completely broken. And within this, there, there really is nothing other than to say she was guilty. But notice what they say. Verse 4. Teacher, this woman's been caught in adultery in the very act. Now the law of Moses commands us to stone such a woman. What do you say? What's the trap? If Jesus says, let her go, then he places himself above what? The law. If he says, put her to death, then he is no longer the merciful Savior. They were expecting Jesus to stand up for this woman as he did for all the other sinners, the lepers and all the other people that were there. They were expecting Jesus to speak against the law. And if Jesus spoke against the law, then they got him. Here's a side question. Do we need the law? Is the law relative for us today? Nod your head, yes. It is. Why? Because if I had not the law, I would not know that I was a sinner. Romans chapter 7, verse 7 says this. What should we say? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. We need law. We need law to reveal our failures, to reveal our brokenness. We need that standard that says, Carrie, you are a liar and, and that is a sin. Then I can agree with the law and say, yes, I'm a liar and I'm a sinner. 
which opens the door for repentance, which opens the door for mercy and for forgiveness. We need the law. Because the law reveals the depth of my sin. If I did not have the law, then I would never know that I need a Savior. Right? I would never know that I was dead in my sins. So we need the law to reveal our sin that awakens our hearts so that we can recognize the need of a Savior. The bottom line is that we're all guilty of sin and we're all under the penalty of the law apart from Jesus Christ. But Jesus died on the cross to fulfill the judgment from the law to give us life. Now, if that's true, and it is, then do I have freedom to sin? No. I shouldn't. I shouldn't take that freedom and say, well, you know, God, if you gave me your grace, then I'll sin some more, so I'll get more grace. Paul says what? May it never be. Now, the other side of it is, though, if we are guilty of sin, and we are, and Jesus paid the penalty for our sin, and he did, and our sins are cast as far as from the east to the west, and they were, then what happens when Satan comes to accuse us of our sin? That has been forgiven. When Satan comes to accuse us of our sinful condition as a sinner, yet I'm clothed with the righteousness of God, then how do I stand? I stand as one that is forgiven. I stand one in the righteousness of Christ, not of my own. And the accuser of the brethren can pack sand. Because his accusations can't stick. Should I take advantage of that? Never. But we stand in the righteousness of Christ before a righteous God who is holy and just because of what Jesus did, not because of what I do. But this woman's not there yet. She's standing before Jesus in front of all of these people guilty of this sin. And they're trying to trick Jesus. And notice what Jesus did in verse 6. Knowing that they were testing him, he kneels down on the ground, and with his finger he started writing on the ground. Now what was he writing? We don't know. One of the rules is this, where the scripture is silent and doesn't explain it, we should be silent, don't explain it. Don't try to insert. I've heard people say, well, you know, he was writing the names of the people, or he was writing their sins, and all these. that's all speculation, we don't know. He might have been doodling. He was acting as if it wasn't a big deal. He wasn't, he wasn't blowing them off, but he just started writing it with his finger. But what he was doing was setting them up. He was giving pause. There is an a, a important lesson here. Not every accusation requires an answer. Sometimes what they would call a pregnant pause or silence is really good. You ever done that with your kids? Just sat there and was quiet for a bit and you give room for the Holy Spirit to do its work? Well, Jesus starts doodling in the sand. Verses 7 through 9 says, But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said, He who is without sin among you, let him... Be the first to throw a stone. And again he stooped down and writing on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone. And the woman 
where she was in the center of the court. So what does Jesus do? When the account, we're told that these Jewish leaders, they were pushing Jesus for a judgment. They pleaded their case. They wanted Jesus to give an answer. He wouldn't give them an answer. He just doodles. But he does stand up and he says, you who are without sin, you cast the first stone. Well, what is Jesus doing? He's putting it back on them. They were trying to trap him, and he puts them in a trap. The trap of conscience. The trap of conscience is amazing. Because if you leave room and allow someone's conscience, then their own conscience can convict them. Jesus is the righteous judge. And he judges rightly because he judges with truth. He knew the, sin, the woman was sinful, but who was, had the greater sin? The adulteress? Or the scribes and the Pharisees? It's the scribes and the Pharisees who were testing the Son of God. He'll deal with the woman, but he has to deal with this group first. And so in this, he says, you who are without sin. Now, there's two ways to translate that from the original language. One way is, he who has not sin, you cast the first stone. But I think a more powerful way is in the second version. In the second version, which I think is the more accurate version, says, He who has no ability to sin, cast the first stone. Now think about that. No ability to sin. So for any one of them, for them to pick up the stone, they would have to declare themselves as what? God. Which would be blasphemy. They couldn't do it. And so, and notice it was the older to the younger which really understood that. Jesus was declaring the law. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 7, this is how that the death penalty should be inflicted. It says, The hand of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterwards the hand of all the people. So you'll purge the evil from your midst. Jesus says, You want to talk about law? Well, the righteous judge, Jesus, pulls out the law and says, okay, you as a witness, you've got to throw the first stone. Oh, by the way, you can only throw the first stone if you don't have the ability to sin. Think about this. What was her sin? Adultery. Right? That means it started with lust in the heart. You who don't have the ability to have lust in your heart, because Jesus would convict the Pharisees later and says, if you've lusted after a woman, you've already committed the act of adultery. You who have never done this and witnessed this woman doing this, you throw the first stone and the blood of her will be upon you. That's powerful. Because Jesus is holding them accountable. For their behavior. Only the perfect one is capable of judgment. And the only perfect one in this scene, in this account, is who? Jesus. Now, we know that Jesus is the only righteous judge. Uh, Paul would write to the church in Rome, Romans chapter 2, verse 1, says, Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment... For in that you judge one another, you condemn yourself, 
For you who judge practice the same thing. What is Paul saying? You better be really careful when you pass judgment on somebody else. Because that judgment you pass on somebody else is really the judgment on your own heart. We all judge people from time to time. Every single one of us. We do. We all judge people, but we need to check ourselves because we could be just like these Pharisees and scribes. And the very sin that we see somebody else doing is the very sin that we're committing in our heart. But it's much easier to point the finger on somebody else than actually to look into our heart. What would it be like if Jesus said to you tonight, before you cast judgment on somebody else, check your heart and make sure you don't have the ability to sin that same way. That's powerful. The only person qualified to execute this woman was Jesus according to the law. And within this, he says this, he stoops down, writes down in the sand, and they all go away, the oldest to the youngest. Why? Because they were more mature, most likely. Verses 10 through 11. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, I do not condemn you either. Go from now and sin no more. What did Jesus do? He cleared the courtroom. He cleared, Woman, where are your accusers? They had opportunity, they had license. They had legal right if they met the qualifications and they didn't. Where's your accusers? She said, no one. Who was the only one capable of judging her and putting her to death? Jesus. And what does he do? Shows mercy. He says, I don't condemn you either. But go and don't continue in the same sin. Which is a powerful statement because that's Jesus saying, I know what you're doing. I know what you did. Don't do it anymore. And isn't that mercy? Not giving her what she deserved by law. Aren't you glad God does not give us what we deserve? The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is what? Eternal life. It's a powerful, powerful account. Jesus doesn't excuse this woman's sin because He says... Go and sin no more. But he also doesn't allow the weak to be swallowed up by the righteous and the self-righteous. He gives her mercy. He doesn't condemn her, but he doesn't give her license to continue. That's a powerful account of mercy. And I am glad that I have a merciful Savior, aren't you? We look at this next passage here. Now we're back to the the festival accounts of John. So now we're back in, the, in, in John's narrative that actually picks up in verse, from verse 52. Verse 52 of chapter 7 says, And then they answered him, and says, You are not also from Galilee all. You search and see that the prophet arises of Galilee. And then down to verse 12, Then Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but have the light of life. Now, John chapter 7 is the, the section where Jesus is on, and they, they are there for the Feast of Tabernacles. This is a continuing conversation. Now you understand why John 8, 1 
through 11 doesn't fit because John 7:52 matches right up to 8:12. Do you follow? So so this section was put in here. So we're picking up on this ongoing conversation where Jesus now turns and and he's at the festival of tabernacles that's there. And he is talking now about light. And he spoke and he said to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Now, as we look at this, again, we've got to understand the backdrop. The backdrop is this conversation where Jesus already said, I'm the bread of life. And I have living water. And now he says, I'm the light of life within this. And it's all about this feast of tabernacles where he speaks concerning everything that's going on there. And within this, to give you a picture, in the, in the temple courtyard, there would have been four very large menorahs. These very large menorahs would have all been lit in the Feast of Tabernacles. If you remember, how was it that God led the children of Israel through the wilderness? It was, what, smoke and smoke and fire, Right? So, Feast of Tabernacles is celebrating the Jews' migration through the wilderness. And then in the Feast of Tabernacles, they would have all four of these menorahs lit within this. And they were lit every day. And then every day, according to the Mishnah, then they would sound a trumpet every day until the sixth day. And then they would do it six different times within this. So they had all of these, these lights and these horns and everything. And it was this huge feast that was going on. And Jesus stands up in front of these huge menorahs that are lit and says, I am the light of the world. Now, if you're a Jew and you're celebrating the light that led you through the wilderness, who is God, and Jesus stands up in front of this this menorah that is the light there that's representing Yahweh God, and he says, I am the light of the world. What is he really declaring? I'm God. On this feast, this light led you through the wilderness, but he says, I am the light of the world. Note, he who follows me. What? Israel followed the light, the fire through the wilderness. But Jesus is taking this celebration and says, no, I am the light of the world. He who follows me, not this light, but follows me. Why? Because he's God incarnate within this. He uses the name of God, ego ami, within this. And he uses the word phos, not luxnos. The word phos is light, Greek for light. Luxnos is lamp. So he makes a distinguishing remark that I am the light, not the lamp of the world or the cosmos. In John 1, and 1 John 1, 5 says this. This is the message that we have from him and announce it to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness. And in John 1, 9 says there is a true light which comes into the world that enlightens every man. And in John 9, 5, Jesus says, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Light is a theme of the deity of God. The Shekinah glory that filled the temple was what? Light. Light is always in contrast to darkness. 
So the illustration can't be missed by any of the Jews that are there when Jesus makes this declaration. And this light represents the, 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 the presence and the glory of God. And if you want to read more about this pillar of light, you can read Exodus chapter 13, verses 21 and 22. If you want to read more about the Shekinah glory, we, we see it here in Psalm 119, 105. It where we see your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path, and the Shekinah glory that is there. But what's even more amazing is this. In Revelation chapter 21, verses 23 to 24, it says, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine, for the glory of God has illuminated it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Note, its lamp is the Lamb. For what? For the city. Revelation. There's no sun or moon in heaven. That God Himself is going to be the illuminating force in heaven. Notice, and the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring glory to it. There are certain statements that Jesus makes that leaves no doubt in His declaration that He is God. And there is no doubt here. When He aligns Himself as the light of the world, the light of creation, the kind of glory, the light that fills the temple, and then later John, who writes this, will write Revelation and see that light in heaven. There is no doubt what Jesus was saying on that temple mount within this. And the promises. These two promises that are, that are there. He says, if you follow me, you will not walk in darkness within this. It, it, it's amazing. He's, it, it, he who follows me, and if you have notes, it, it's, it's called an emphatic negative. He who follows me, no not will walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You, you can't get a stronger statement than that. What's the difference between a, a believer and a non-believer? Light and darkness. The believer walks in the light. Why? Because the light of Christ has illuminated him through the Holy Spirit. The unbeliever will walk in darkness. Why? Because the light of the Holy Spirit, the illumination of the Holy Spirit in their life is not present. And so they're left to fumble their way around. You're here tonight because God has called you out of the darkness and into the light. And it is a good thing. Once you are saved, you are pulled out of the darkness. Next Monday night, the prince of the power of the air, the prince of darkness, is going to run havoc all over the place. And, and people that are in darkness are going to do horrible things and think it's fun. And, and, and you look at how people sin and treat other people, and they do it without conscience. How do people do the things they do to one another? Because they're in darkness. And how is it so appalling to a believer? Because we are in the light. And the light of Christ produces life. Notice how he ends verse 12. But we'll have the light of what? Life. Life. Now the Pharisees said to him, no, verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, you're testifying about yourself. 
your testimony is not true. And Jesus answered and said to him, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I come from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. Why? Because you're in darkness. You judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it. But I, I am the Father who sent me. Even in your law, notice he says your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am, ego me, he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. And so they were saying to him, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know, neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. And these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught them in the temple. No one seized him because this hour had not yet come. So what ends up happening here? Jesus makes this tremendous statement. I am, ego of me, the light of the world. And the Pharisees say, that can't be true. Because you are self-proclaiming yourself as being God without a witness. What did they do? They fell back to the law. What does the law say? That in Deuteronomy it says, In the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Jesus was telling the truth, but they were basically calling him a liar. Deuteronomy chapter 17, 6, and also Deuteronomy 19, 15 tells us that it was a capital case or a capital crime to call yourself as God. And, you, and in those cases, you had to have two or three witnesses that were there to, to announce it. And with other cases. Now, did Jesus have witnesses that says that he is the Son of God? The answer is absolutely yes. We know John the Baptist did. We know God the Father spoke from heaven. And we know the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's three. That had already taken place. But why were they questioning him? Because they didn't want the answer. So they said, you're testifying about yourself. You can't, you can't testify yourself and declare this to be true. Well, yes you can, but have you ever tried to tell somebody the truth and they just don't want to hear it? I mean, it's the absolute truth and they just don't want to hear it. And they can't understand it. Why? Because they're in darkness. They're in darkness and they don't even know they're in darkness. It's like a fish. A fish doesn't know it's wet. It, it, it's the environment that it's in. They're in darkness and they don't, they don't know that they're in darkness. Jesus says, and if I testify about myself, and he does, third class condition, if I testify, it's a potential. If I testify of myself and I'm the only witness, my witness is still true. Why? Did you catch the inflection where I said, and according to your law? Because they were judging according to the law that was given to them. Why can Jesus, or how is it that Jesus can testify about himself? Because he is not of earth, but he's from heaven. His origin is from heaven. He's the son of the Father. So what he says is automatically true because he is God. And there's, there's no room, wiggle room for that. And Jesus' mission and ministry is nothing but truth. He is the divine, and he can be the divine witness that testifies about himself. Does Jesus need witnesses to prove that he is the Son of God? No. But yet he still gave it. He didn't need to. 
But the Pharisees and scribes wouldn't accept it because it didn't fulfill their law, their earthly law, and their earthly understanding. Have you ever just talked to somebody and tried to explain to them God's Word and the standard of God's Word, and it didn't matter what you said, they just wouldn't, they wouldn't receive it? Because they come at it from their human understanding. And what do we know Scripture tells us? That the natural man cannot discern what? Spiritual things. Cannot discern spiritual things. Only by the, the work of the Holy Spirit. And so in verse 15, we're told that Jesus' perception is not the same as man's. Notice he says, you judge according to the flesh. I'm not judging anyone. I don't have to. But if I did judge, my judgment is still true. But I'm not alone in it. My Father who sent me. Man judges according to the flesh. But Jesus, he, he doesn't judge that way. Man can't see the light. Why? Because Satan's blinded him. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says this, In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, note, so that they might not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is in the image of God. We've seen Satan as the accuser. Now we see Satan as the one who blinds the minds of people. Do we see that in our world today? Sure we do. Sure we do. All around, people are blinded by Satan and they cannot see because Satan has the blinders. So one of the things that you can pray on Monday as you pass out these packages to the kids, pray over every single packet that goes to them and say, God, would you allow this to be a light in that house? When, the, when they read what's on this package, Holy Spirit, open the eyes of their understanding so that they could see Jesus. It's amazing. A simple verse, John 3.16. For God so loved the world, right? A very simple passage that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but will have eternal life. Do you believe this? And a simple thing of faith will enter in and open the eyes of understanding to receive forgiveness. Jesus' perception, also as He declares, is based on the fact that my Father who testifies about me. He aligns with His Father. Why? Because He's on mission from His Father. He has authority from His Father. Notice in John 5.27, And He gave Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Everything that Jesus did and said was, was on accord of his father. And he gave them, but the problem is, they refuse to know that. In fact, they make an accusation. They say, well, who's your father? Where is your father? Verse 19. And Jesus says, you don't know me or my father. Now, it's interesting because Jesus can only do that which the father tells him to do because of, of being obedient to the father's will. But the problem is, is they were rejecting the Father and rejecting Jesus. But listen to what they say. Where is your Father? Now, it could mean one of three things. It could mean, where is your earthly father, Joseph? Where is your father that says he's testifying about you? Where is Joseph? Fair enough. Or, where is your heavenly Father? Show him to us. You say your father's going to testify? He's going to testify? Bring him here. 
You say your father's in heaven, bring him down. Show me the heavenly father. Or, which I think is probably the case, it's probably this third accusation. Where is your father? Oh, you don't have a father because you're the bastard child of Mary. Which I think is the case. The accusation within this. We look at this and they're arguing. They don't want to know the truth. They can't understand the Father because they can't see the Father because Satan has blinded their eyes. And so Jesus says, you don't know me nor my Father. If you knew me, you'd know my Father. Do you remember what Philip said? He would say, Jesus, show us the Father. And he said, Philip, have I been so long with you? If you've seen me, you've seen who? The Father. Why? Because he and the Father are one. In fact, he says that in John 14, 7 through 9. And so we look at that, and Jesus was, was there. Now, with all of these accusations, verse 20 says, He spoke this in the treasury, taught in the temple, but no one seized him. Why? The hour had not yet come. The opposition is growing greater. They're becoming very, very hostile toward Jesus. Coming to an end. And they still wouldn't believe. This last section here, 21 to 30. So then he said again to them, I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. And so the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself since he says where I'm going, you cannot come. And he was saying to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins for Note, unless you believe that I am ego me, the name of God, you will die in your sin. And so they were saying to him, well, who are you? Jesus said to them, what I have been saying to you from the beginning, I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him, these things I speak to the world. Well, they didn't realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. And so Jesus said to him, When you lift up the Son of Man, and you will, then you will know that I am, ego and me, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he, and he who sent me is with me. He who has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. What a difference in contrast. So he has another conversation, another discussion in the temple at a different time. He's again discussing the same issue about his father. Who is your father and, and where are you going and who are you really all about? But here Jesus turns and he says, you're not believing. You won't believe. I've told you everything to be able to believe, and you still won't believe. Here are the consequences of unbelief. Here are the consequences if you continue in sin. That I'm going to go away, and you're not going to be able to follow. In other words, I'm going to go to a place that you cannot find me. I'm going away, you'll seek me, 
You'll seek a Savior, but you won't find a Savior. Why? Because you're going to die in your sin. Is there a point in time in an individual's life when it's too late for them to be saved? Sure. When you die in your sin. When you die in that condition of sin. You should seek the Lord while He may be found. But if you die in, a, in an unforgiven state, you're done. You don't get to go to the throne room of God. You don't get to go to heaven. And Jesus is warning him, I'm going someplace and you're going to want to seek me there, but you won't find me. Why? Because you're going to be dead in hell. I tell you this, there was a guy who wrote a book. And the title of that book is called Love Wins. It was one of the most heretical books that you could ever find. He writes this book on the premise that you, when you die, unregenerated and unforgiven, when you die and you are in hell, that you can still ask for forgiveness in hell and be saved. And he sold tons of copies. And his premise was the love of God is capable of saving the person even in the deepest part of hell. And it's a lie. You have to make that decision now. And Jesus is begging me. He's given the conditions of their unbelief. There is a condition and a belief system that people have today. It's called universalism. Have you ever heard of it? Universalism is no one goes to hell. Everybody goes to heaven. Is that true? No. No, secular universalism basically says all roads lead to God. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you sincerely believe it. Is that a truth or a lie? That's a lie. There is a, a, another kind of universalism. It's called evangelical universalism that states that all creation eventually will be saved through Christ. That's another lie. You are saved by grace through faith, not of your works, lest anyone should boast. But the key is faith. Not faith in faith, but faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. These guys are rejecting Him. And He says, you're going to want, there's going to come a time in your eternal existence when you're going to want to find Me and you're not going to find Me. Because you're dead in your sin. And it's interesting because that word sin there is singular. It doesn't say dead in your sins. Dead in your sin. What is the one sin that cannot be forgiven? Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the rejection, unbelief. Why? Because you can't be forgiven of that which you don't believe in. Jesus said this, I am, the in 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. But if you don't believe in Jesus, you can't get on the way. You can't be in the way. It's impossible. And so they're gonna they're gonna seek a Messiah. Now there's gonna be false Christs and all those that'll come, but they're gonna lead them astray. He would write, Paul later would write to the church of Galatia, the churches in Galatia, in the region. He says, I'm amazed that you so quickly deserted him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another gospel, only that there are some who are disturbing you and won't distort the gospel of Christ. There are people that today that are teaching a false gospel. Is there not? Yeah. 
Three of them showed up at my door the other night. It didn't go so well for them. Yeah, I was taking care of a, of a project and it wasn't good. They asked me if I would read something and, and pray that God would reveal that something as being a truth. I don't even want to honor it by giving it a name. They said, just have you ever thought about reading this and asking God to reveal it's the truth? And I said, well, I pray to God. Yeah, and what you're pushing is a lie. I read the Bible. And it's the Word of God. And that's all I need to read. I don't need an extra book to try to figure out my life. Like I said, it didn't go so well for them. But within this, we've got to understand that there are people that are trying to lead you astray. And Jesus says there's going to come a time when people will be led astray. And unless you trust in Jesus, verses 22 to 24, you will not exit the realm of death and into life. You will always be in the realm of death. Now, the Jews misunderstood Jesus because they said, well, he's going someplace where we can't go. He's going to kill himself. Why? Well, one of the things about Judaism is if you commit suicide, then you automatically go to hell. There is no redemption. Because in order for Judaism to have your sins forgiven, the sinner has to offer a blood sacrifice to cover their sin in order for their sins to be forgiven. But if you're dead, you can't offer a sacrifice for yourself. You follow? So they say, well, if he's going someplace, then he's going to commit suicide, and we're definitely not going to follow him there. And so within this, they were trying to reason in their mind about this, but they got it wrong. So Jesus explains to them the difference. He says, look, you're from below. I'm from above. You're thinking the wrong thoughts. You're going to die in your sin unless you believe I am God. We are born into this fallen condition. Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 4.4, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see. So what do we pray for our brothers and sisters who are not saved? God, open the eyes of their understanding. Let them see. And having seen Jesus, then they would believe within this. Jesus is from the realm of the living unregenerated or from the realm of the dead. There are only two places that people are from. Those that are born again enter into the realm of the living. When does eternal life begin? The day of your salvation. The day you accept Jesus. And you're called out of darkness and into life. And so Jesus gives them the ultimatum in verse 24. Unless you believe. Unless you believe what? Ego of me. I am the Messiah. Our only hope is being born from above. Jesus is pleading with these people that are so blind. May we become like Jesus. May we grab a hold of the ankles of those that are going into the pit of hell and hold on to them and plead with them and beg, please, come to faith. It's imperative. Now, within this, if they remain in that condition of death, verses 25 to 30, if they remain in this condition, then they will never see life. When, are they, when is the light going to turn on for them? 
Jesus says, your unbelief is going to continue until the day you crucify me. And then, then perhaps you'll believe. Sometimes it takes a tragic event in order to open the eyes of the blind. Sometimes it takes a great awakening to get us to that place where we sacrifice our own self in order to be able to accept Christ. I know a lot of people that have come to the rock bottom. I know a lot of people that have come to that place where they said, God, I've got nothing left. The one thing that Jesus does say is this in verse 28. When you lift up the Son of Man, and you will, then you will know, ego of me, I am. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak the things of the Father. Do you remember the Roman centurion that was standing next to Jesus when he died? And when Jesus died, what did that Gentile say? Truly, this is the Son of God. Truly. But even then, the Pharisees and the scribes still refused to believe. Even then, they rejected. The cross is the glory of the Son. And it reveals that greatest sacrifice. And John 17, 5 says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which, which I had before you. The cross is the place that we come. If the cross is where we go to have our sins forgiven. And the cross is where we receive that new life. Because we died with Christ at that cross. And we are buried with Him in the tomb. And just as He rose again, we live again. In Him eternally. And He spoke these things. And notice verse 30, And many came to believe. Not everybody, but many. Why? Because He called them to believe. Unless you believe, you will die in your sin. If someone gave you the diagnosis of cancer, terminal, stage four, and unless you go and take this one pill, you will die of this cancer. But if you take this one pill, your cancer will be completely eradicated forever. Would you go take the pill? Sure. Why? Because they said it will get rid of my cancer. It will free me from the potential of death. Then why are we so hesitant to simply accept the free gift of forgiveness and love and faith through Jesus for eternal life and escape an eternal hell? To just believe. It's that simple. Why are we so hesitant? We've got to wrestle with that in our flesh. But perhaps we should just surrender ourselves and say, God, here I am. Forgive me. I accept the forgiveness that you're offering. I acknowledge that, Jesus, you died for my sins. And I, I want my life to, to be lived in and through you in a resurrected life, a new life. We've seen tonight in this account the dangers of unbelief. The work of Satan as the accuser of the brethren. 
in contrast to the mercy of Jesus and the pleading of the Savior who says, please, come and have life. That's the message of the Gospel. Let's pray. God, I thank You that You've given us that hope and that future. That, Lord Jesus, You've given us everything that pertains to life and godliness and the answers that are in line with it. Lord, we know that in us, we are dead, dark people. But in You, we have the light of life. And may we walk in that light. Lord, as we close out tonight, even with this song, may we meditate on the words and think through how great a salvation we have. And in the same manner, Lord, I pray that you would bring to our attention our minds those that are walking in darkness. And that we would grab a hold of their ankles to keep them in a place where they could hear your word. You're the only one that can save. But may we not let them freely fall to the pit of hell. We praise you and we thank you that we have that life. May we share it with others. In Jesus' name. Let's all stand more close. The splendor of the King Clothed in majesty Let all the earth rejoice All the earth rejoice He wraps himself in light And darkness tries to hide And trembles at his voice Trembles at his voice How great is our God
God, you are great and mighty. And you are so far above all things. Yet you're present right now. You are working in the hearts of the hearers of your word to draw us close to you, to convict us of sin, that we might walk in the righteousness and the light that you've set before us. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here watching this online that doesn't know you, that has not come to a place of believing, that their eyes have been opened to their sin and they realize that, that right now they're dead in their sin and they want that life. May they seek you today and be found. May today be the day of their salvation. And say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Fill me and forgive me. Give me a new life. I want to follow after you. To believe and to follow after Jesus. Boy, that's the key. Lord, I pray that we would carry that message forward to everyone that we see. Until that day, you call us home. And may everything we say and do make you smile. We praise and we thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-397. 4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.